You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. My guest this week is the rugby union referee, Nigel Owens, who he is the best referee on the planet at the moment but of course he's also very much in the public eye for his sexuality coming coming out as gay in I think 2007 and I've interviewed him on the radio before so I've I've never met him he is I think a brilliant and quite beautiful talker so if this doesn't go well it's on me we begin with me almost certainly mispronouncing Munith Kerrig. No, that's spot on. Get actually. in. That is. You, you've pronounced that better than a lot of Welsh people would do, yeah. If you translate it, it's Mountain of Stone. Is it? And that's what pretty much it is, yeah. Small village on top of a, of a mountain. Um, population about... When I was brought up there, about 140 people. Really? Very, very small, knit, close community, yeah. So everybody knows everybody's Everybody business. knows everybody, yeah. And a lot of the families... And when you go back to that period when I was born, my parents and stuff, you were coming from families of five, six, seven, eight, nine children. Mm. And a lot of them stayed in the village. So my dad was one of seven. There were two of them living in the village. My dad, my uncle, still lives there. There were other families where five or six of the kids have still lived there. So, yeah, still really very close communities. And is it still like that now or is it dissipated a little bit? No, it's just, uh, the, the, a lot of it is like that. Um, the central part of it is like that, but then there's a lot of sort of building going on over the last sort of 15 years where the population has increased by maybe a couple of hundred, not much, and people have moved in. But but the great thing is that people have moved in, have bought into the community spirit and right. supported the community, and uh, it's still a great, great place to live because of the community spirit. And rugby is a religion? It is in Wales. I wouldn't in say general. my village. My dad played football. For many carry got a football team until the sort of mid-60s. A very good football team as well. Um, and because of the small village, when I was a kid growing up, we tended to kick a football around a bit oh, really? more because okay. there was only about four or five of us my age. Group. Easier to organise. Easier to organise, easier to go goalie in, goalie out, you know. And uh, did play rugby as well when there was a bit more of you. A couple of mates came over as well. We played rugby as well. And uh, I think after the, my first sort of memory of, of picking the rugby ball up really was I was about six years of age, seven years of age. And... Phil Bennett just, just scored this wonderful try against Scotland up in Murrayfield in 1977 where Gerald Davis broke out from his own 22 and you remember him scoring underneath the post and the brown leather ball they had then underneath his chin and I went out after that game in the old Five Nations it was to to kick the ball about in the field behind the house I lived in a council estate, brought up in the council estate and there were two donkeys in the field behind the house <laughs> and I remember Chipping over the donkeys and running around them, pretending to be Phil Bennett. That's my first memory, about six, seven years of age, picking up the rugby ball. But played a lot of football as well. And what sort of six-year-old were you? Mischievous, yeah. naughty. Um, in a good way. I mean, in a good you know, way, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the same when I was in school. A lot of teachers will, will even say now, some of my cousins are in school now, you know, the younger generation. And some of the teachers still there will say, oh, you know, Nigel was really naughty, mischievous in school. But in... In a likeable way, you know, not in... I was never sort of naughty and I wasn't, you know, did the usual say knocking on doors and running the usual stuff, you know, and... But I was never sort of cheeky and stuff. It was more of a sort of mischievous, you know, way about it. Like, what, what, in a likeable way then. Of course. Well, yeah, we'd have to check with the sources on that, <laughs> wouldn't we? But I'll yeah. take your word for it for now. And what was home like? I mean, was it... Yeah, home was quite... Um, 
quite an old-fashioned upbringing in, in one sense. I was the only child. Um, my mum and dad were quite late having me, really. My dad was sort of about, I'd say he was about 40, late 30s, 40s. My mum mm. was about the 30s, but late-ish then, you know, and um, only child, brought up then with, uh, lived with my, my grandparents for the first five years until my mum and dad actually got a, a council house on the council estate. Um, and it was a very close-knit community, brought up, I believe, in... In the proper way, you know, taught to respect people, say your please and thank for uh, thank yous, and uh, I wouldn't say in an overly strict way, but brought up in knowing what is right and wrong, and um, and this is where I think, you know, just sum it up for you, really, I suppose is. This is where I think society's gone wrong today, you know. When I was, we've only been here four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone straight in on the biggies. <laughs> when, I, when, I, when I got home from school, and I'd be naughty in school, and I would tell my mum, I'd get a smack on the bum with my mum, and I'd go to bed now then because mm. you were naughty in school and had a row in school. I think today when kids go home, some parents will go up to school to complain because the kids be naughty, the teacher's given them a row. Yeah. But back then, you know, I was sort of saying, well, no, if you've been naughty in school and you've done things wrong, then then you need to be punished and you go to bed early and it's quite right the teacher's giving you a row and I stuff. Can, so I, I was brought up, you know, in, in that sort of kind I of way. I see the little well. referee already. Yeah, Actions have consequences. Yeah, they do. And uh, I agree with you, actually, for what it's worth. And look, no, no, no PlayStations or nothing then. You were out in the street, kicking the football up, picking the rugby ball up, playing hide and seek, you know, knock and run, the yes. kids playing out, building tree houses and stuff. You know, like, and it was, it was, yeah, it was a great, great upbringing. Really. And, and, and you were a happy kid. Very, very happy kid, yeah. Very, very happy kid. All, a lot of family, very close-knit my family is. My mum was one of six, my dad was one of seven, so my cousins and stuff and me are very close, and I'm very close now. I haven't got brother or sisters, so I've got niece, no niece or nephews, but I've got quite a few godchildren. Mm. My, their children now are my little cousins. I suppose they're like niece and, and nephews to me in one sense. Yeah, so very, 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 very happy. And I wouldn't want my upbringing to be any different to what it was. And, um, of course, the, the connection to the village remains. I saw you on Twitter after... Um, after he refed the 2015 World Cup final and they put up a big banner in the middle of the village and you said, I had a tear to my eye seeing seeing this. So they're, they're, they're fond of you as well. Yeah, it's it's two-way traffic. They're, yeah, they're very fond, actually. And do you know what? Uh, the club that week, you know, when I was growing up, you had the, the carnivals every year and everybody was in the club afterwards and people dressing up. And unfortunately, with the times, those don't happen anymore. Mm. Um, but it was like a carnival week that my dad was saying. Every, the club was packed every night. The money carry club between the three rooms. It's not a very big club, but I would say between the three rooms, you could fit in about, I say, about 160, 170 people. There must have been about 400 people there that day. Health and safety would have shut the place down. <laughs> and um, it was, I can, ima- I can imagine, I can imagine how proud they were as well and how proud I was of them. And if there's one thing I would could do, but it would have never happened otherwise, I wish I could have been there with them. Yes. Yes. celebrating this but obviously if I was there with them then they wouldn't have happened because you know I wouldn't be doing the World Cup final but it, it was and uh, that's what I think is so special about that community spirit and uh, we're losing it unfortunately but thankfully Money Carrick it's still strong there There's some pockets isn't it real rural pockets that seem to be hanging on to some of the more I'd say traditional structures and values but you're right they are they are kind of they're diluting elsewhere I'll just jump forward very briefly because we've mentioned the 2015 world cup final when when do you find out you get the nod for that because you must know you're in the frame for it how, how does it shake down well it was a very i was going into the world cup it was a strange feeling i was going to the world cup on the back of refereeing some really great games of rugby and i've got to say this it, it wasn't great games of rugby because of my refereeing they were great games of rugby because the players played brilliantly and that was south africa new zealand in 2013 
16, what many people say is the greatest game of rugby they've ever mm. seen. And then you were Ireland against New Zealand, then a month later in Dublin where yes. Ireland shot to the lead, New Zealand came back, that conversion was retaken and they won the game at the end. And then I had the Super Saturday final game, England-France in Twickenham, you know, 49-42, whatever the score was, a brilliant game of rugby. Then I did the European Cup final, Clement Toulon was a brilliant final. So I was going to the World Cup under huge pressure with a lot of people, a lot of people saying that I'll do the final. And I knew if I don't perform well in the World Cup, I won't be doing the final because there are another two or three or four referees who on the day are as good as me or as good as anybody else. So I had to perform. So then as the World Cup went on, the three games I did in the pool... They all went really well. I had a great report. There were great games of rugby. It was a wonderful World Cup, actually. And then they announced the quarterfinals. And there was one game of the quarterfinal, which all the other referees said, we don't want that one, because it was New Zealand-France in Cardiff. And, of course, Wayne Barnes did it back in 2007, where the, where the forward pass happened. Yes, and, and, obviously, there was huge furor in New Zealand. New Zealand were out to the World Cup. And that wasn't Wayne Barnes's fault. You know, they... And they were it wasn't really the anyone's fault. Well, no, it wasn't anyone's fault. It happens, doesn't it? Happens, it happens, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, anyway, but the forward pass was missed. And obviously then there was, you know, a bit of ill feeling from France after the 2011 World Cup final as well in that. So this was a game which was the kiss of death. <laughs> and I had done Ireland-France the week before that in the last group stage. And whoever lost that game was playing New Zealand. So anyway, France lost to Ireland and they were playing New Zealand. Now all the other referees are saying, well... You, you'll do that one. And I said, well, no, I've done France a week before. You're not going to do them two weeks on the trot. Um, anyway, the fixtures came out. Um, I was doing that one. So I went into that game and thinking, right, there is no way I am going to let my decisions have any sort of effect on this game or my mistakes. Then right. you know, I'm going to do my best and I want people speaking about the two teams, the right team or the best team wins and it got nothing to do with me. Yeah. And that's what happened. New yeah. Zealand probably played the best rugby they played for a long, long time. And I don't think they've played as rugby as well since. They, they blew France away something like 62-20. Mm. And France tried and they played well in stages but New Zealand were just a better team. So then they, after the quarterfinal then they announced the semi-finals. So we sit in the room and the Monday morning, have your debrief. Are you nervous? Is this like, because you, you've got, you, you want to yeah, referee the World Cup final. Yeah, so you this nervous. is sort of, yeah. it all leads to here. It does. You're sitting there and thinking, <laughs> right, they go through the good things and done things you could have done better. And, and my review was, was good from that game, so no issues. And they announced the semi final mm. referees. And the semi final referees was um, New Zealand, South Africa, Jerome Garces, and Argentina, Australia, Wayne Barnes. Nigel Owens is not an assistant referee, is nowhere there. And a couple of the referees, um, John Lacey, one of my best mates, Wayne Barnes and um, Glenn Jackson, they turn around to me and go, well done, well done, you've got oh, the I final. See, yes. And I say, final, I said, I, I even, my name's not even up on the semi-finals. I, you know, I've got the, I may not have nothing. But there was something inside me saying... Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm not involved again it because can't be completely can't, yeah, out of the exactly, loop. Can't can't of the loop. No. And uh, the following week was a strange week because there was bits of you thinking you've got it, people telling you you've got it, but until it was actually there in front of you. So the following Monday after the semi-finals, they announced, and Joel Jute said, uh, "Well, we're going to announce the final referee, but I think you've all guessed who it is." And when they announced my name up there, that's when I actually really knew 100% I got it. And it was a strange feeling. It wasn't a feeling of um, emotion and tears. 
you know, of, and yes, I've got it. Yeah. It was relief. Oh, yes, thank course, God you've told me at last. Could have been you know, very yeah. embarrassing. That's, <laughs> and that's what it was. It was a strange old feeling. So, and that's how it all panned out. But uh, it was it was a wonderful World Cup and a most wonderful experience. And, and and what it allowed my community in Money Carrig as well to celebrate that week. You know, it was it was amazing, and um, it was a, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful occasion. Really. So back 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 to Money Carrig. Um, Back to the beginning, or a little bit later, primary school. You, you, you arrive at primary school. You are. You know, I've read that you, this will be a little later in life. You've said that you always knew you were going to be a ref because even when I was in school, I wasn't really liked. So, <laughs> yeah, that, so well, yeah. I know I was liked in school. It's a yeah. bit, bit of bit of something for the after dinner speaking that is. But um, <laughs> um, now there's a picture of me and my couple of my cousins, a couple of my friends from the council estate in Manikarig, where we're having a bike race. And there's six bikes and there's seven of us. Right. There's six people on the bike and there's me standing next door to them at about eight years of age <laughs> with a whistle in my mouth ready to start the bike race. So probably the signs were there back then, really. But Money Carrying School, there's only about 14 or 15 of us in the whole primary school. Gosh. So you know everyone, small. the age distinctions aren't really there. They're not. The you're, two, you're two classes. Right. Class, um, Taught together. Age five till, till seven and seven till 11. And I... I couldn't speak English till I learnt it in school. So I was about seven years of age before I could speak English fluently to mm. have a conversation. I, you know, until I went to school, I couldn't speak a word Just of Welsh English. Just Welsh at home. Always. Welsh at home, yeah, mm. yeah. And um, Manikari Primary School was, yeah, was 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 a great and uh, really close knit, you know, school and friends, and it was it was marvellous. So, I mean, it, it, it was twenty years after starting primary school that you found yourself in quite a bad place, as we'll discuss shortly. So, I'm interested in 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 because I've got an image of this very happy, very loved eight year old boy finding his feet. Perhaps I, I don't want to use the word officious. But you were already starting to <laughs> yeah. tell, starting to tell the other kids when to when to start and when oh, to yeah. stop. So when when did when, when did the sort of clouds appear in your in your in your life? Well, I think the first clouds came along when I went from Manikari School. I passed the Lem Plus. How the hell I passed it, I don't know, but I did. <laughs> I went to the Gwendoth Grammar School. Okay, and um, I was going from a small school now of about fourteen kids to a school of about a thousand kids, and not really knowing anybody there That's apart from huge, the odd one. It was huge, a huge culture shock. It was a scariest yeah. day of my life. And not life. many kids from primary school came across to the grammar school with you? No, I was the only one you from Manikari that year. I was the only scary. one. That's there scary. was two of us the same age. Uh, the other one went to Pontebiarem School, the second modern. I went right, to the right. Gwendoth Grammar School. Uh, and they phased the grammar school. That was the last year of the grammar was school. It? They were phasing out then. You did your education through Welsh or through mm. English. So it was really scary. I had a couple of cousins older than me in school. And it was a difficult time in that school because I was picked on. I was bullied in school. From the beginning? No, from about two months in, three okay. months in. And um, for no apparent reason, just by one individual. And um, it was a horrible time. And if anybody's experienced being bullied, you feel a sense of shameness, weakness. You yeah. feel that there's something wrong with you. But, but actually, there's nothing wrong with you. It's with the bully that usually has the issues. And I used to go to school and uh, be truant. So it affected my education. I didn't play rugby and stuff in school then because I was scared. I didn't want to be in the same place as the bully. And uh, it did affect my lifetime in that school for that period of five or six months yeah. and you'd go to school in the morning and your mum would say look uh, have a good day today see you tonight and then you'd, you'd murmur under your breath you know when you're walking out the house I'll see you tonight I'm still alive it was a horrible horrible feeling so it was physical feeling. as well as, as yeah verbal, it, it was, was it? yeah and it was a horrible horrible feeling um, and you can't tell your mum and dad because A you don't want them to think that you're vulnerable or yeah. weak and B because you don't want to upset your mum exactly and that's why a lot of people don't speak about yeah. about bullying or speak up or any issues really in, in, in their life and um, 
Anyway, the bullying stopped overnight. A couple of my mates saw the bully picking at me one day, and one of them gave him a right hook, put him on his ass in the classroom, which I had great pleasure in laughing. And uh, <laughs> and then school became happy. And then I left there then with this group of friends to okay. go to the Mysore to the Welsh language school. And that's where... I really, really enjoyed school. I had opportunities to do my first TV work at 14 years of age for S4C. I did then a lot of stuff in school, on stage, acting, performing, did drama, had other opportunities on TV. The refereeing started then yes. in, in that school as well at 16 years of age. And uh, and it was a brilliant, brilliant time. So, um, yeah, you know, I was very fortunate then in that latter part of, the, of the, my secondary so, school. So with the, with the kind of performing and the acting and drama and stuff like that, there was no kind of conflict with the with the with the macho world of rugby was it because I went to a very big rugby school I went to Ampleforth I was a, with Lawrence Delalio and and I was an actor and Lawrence was a lot more popular than I was <laughs> let's just put it that way so there, you couldn't be both at my school really you, you could in mind yeah. maybe that was a Welsh name because it was a Welsh yeah, school there was an element a lot of us who went to that Welsh school in that time We'd go to Sunday school. You'd perform in your local primary schools. Mm. You'd perform in Sunday school and stuff like that. And there was a sense, I think, in the Welsh school of of more of that happening. We had the Estevod in the Welsh school and everybody had to yes, take part, course. you it's see. It's the only so, part of the United Kingdom where singing is, is quite manly. It, really. it is. It was in one yes, sense. So you course. had you had the rugby guys, you know, the captain of the rugby team taking part in things on the stage and yeah. stuff like this. So it, it was, there was no divisions as far as that goes then. But I can understand where you're coming from, mm. maybe in other schools or other areas where, where they would be, but not in, in my Saradova school, no. Which is nice because it means you're getting a properly rounded Experience, and you're know, getting yeah. experience of everything you see then. And then, you know, not everybody's going to be good at sport, everybody's going to be good academically, not everybody's going to be good at acting, singing, but there's opportunities there for you then to pursue what, what you're good at. So if I asked the 15-year-old Nigel what he wanted to be when he grew up, what would he have said? I wanted to be a vet. Did you? I was far from intelligent enough, so well, I would give that up. And I was brought up on a small farm with my grandparents, and then I worked on the farm during that time, 14, 15, went up my uncle and auntie's farm during the summer holidays and uh, went to work on a farm then for a couple of years after leaving school. So I wanted to be a farmer then was the next best thing for me. But obviously not coming from a from a farm itself, sure. you know, living on a council estate and a council house. The only way I was going to, as I got older, the only t- way I was going to go into farming was if I was to marry into a farm. And well, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> the farming is something that I had to put on hold. So you did you do your A-levels? I uh, left school with a couple of G- a couple of O-levels. So at 16, you yeah. left before the sixth form. Yeah, but I went back. Okay. I, I passed two exams, but I wanted to go back to do A-levels. I right. wanted to do drama, history and Welsh. And the teachers allowed me to go back and proviso that I would reset some of my uh, O-levels to get better grades so I can continue with... A levels. So I was allowed to start my A level course, but I had to do these three or four subjects reset. Yes. So I went back, and after a couple of weeks in school, I went to get the rugby ball. We went out in the yard to play rugby dinner time, and the headmaster, Arwin Thomas, great character, and he said, as a joke, he said, he said, boys, Enjoy the rugby today because I'm going to have to shut the school up on Monday because the caretaker's gone off ill, he's having a hernia operation, and I can't get anybody to open up the school. He had to do it that day. And I just said as a joke, that's an easy enough job, I'll do that for you. I go to school the following day, and uh, the tannoid goes, um, Nigel Owens, to the headmaster's room. And I thought, what have I done now? Went to the headmaster's room, and he said, look, um, 
I've been thinking a lot what you said yesterday. You said, and I've spoken to the education system in Kamar then, and uh, they agree with me that you can do the caretaker's job <laughs> and still continue your education in the days. So you come in at <laughs> 6 o'clock in the morning, stoke the old coal fires and the water's hot, open up the classroom, do the caretaking duties, then do your education then from 9 till 3 o'clock, right. and then start back then the caretaking duty, and then you lock up and finish half a 6, 7 o'clock. Well, I mean, so when I asked my mum and dad, and they said, well, yeah, yeah. we best of both worlds, best of both worlds. a wage, and you getting an education. Yeah. And then, but after three weeks, I got my first pay packet. Yeah. Week in hand back then. Right, yeah. You got paid a week in hand, not a month in hand, week in hand, a brown envelope, cash, yeah. £138.40 for a 16-year-old boy. It's not bad. And then a list in there what was deducted, tax, national insurance, whatever it was. And after a couple of those pay packets, I thought, oh, I'm not bothered with the education. So I did the caretaker's job for the rest of the year. I left then to go work on the farm. And then after a year on the farm, the headmaster rang up and said, uh, we're looking for a technician in school. Okay. Do you fancy doing the technician job? And I went back to work in school and for a technician for 13 years until I started the refereeing as a job then back in 2001. So I've done four jobs. I haven't had an interview for one of them. No, just so if I have to have, have an interview for a job, I don't know what I'm going to do. What would the headmaster say now, though? Because he came up with this great idea to make you a caretaker, but it meant that you gave up your education. <laughs> it's not really what headmasters are supposed no, to I do. No, I know, but you can't argue what he did no, because it, it gave me the opportunity out. then, the refereeing. And that's when I went back to school to work then as a technician, I was about 18 at the time. And when I got to sort of 19, that's when the dark times started to come in my life then. Right. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to that very shortly because I appreciate your career as a referee didn't start until you were in your early 30s then, is it? Or well, it started late. at 16 as a hobby. But that's but what I want to hear about. As a job, yeah, it as started as, at I want to hear about the hobby side of it as opposed to the, to the job well, side. Because it's an odd thing for a kid to do. No one, want, no one really. No, I mean, you've heard this before, I'm sure. But most kids don't want to be ref. When no, you'd be, surprised, you'd be really? surprised how many do now, you see. Okay. Because they see it as a career now. And they see it now as... And it's not because I want it to be like this. But the way the game is now, you're mic'd up. Every game that I pretty much referee is live on telly. Same with Wayne Barnes. So, So people become... And Austin Healy said recently there was a celebrity referee. I am not a celebrity. You didn't like that. I didn't like that. No, but you are a star. You're not going well, like I, that description I'm, either. I'm, but you just... You I'm, mean, I'm, I'm well known then, you know. Yeah, all right. But, but I, I'm not refereeing to be well known. It's the fact that I am a referee, plus with the other things in my life, that yes. has made me well known. So yes. I am not refereeing for the wrong reasons. And the minute you did start trying to be, you know, uh, be a joker on the, or playing to the gallery, that you, your, your quality as a referee would diminish that, that's immediately. That's gone. It's and and, that's and the, your authority would disappear. Exactly. And that's when you, when you're on that field, you were there to do one simple job, to referee nothing more and nothing mm. less. And if anything else takes away from that, then it'll be time to say, thank you very much and walk away from it. So when I'm on that field, I'm, I do my best to my ability to referee the game and just be myself. So when some of the witty things come out, <laughs> people tell me, or you, hear a, you see a YouTube clip, or people will comment, oh, brilliantly funny, Nigel Owens. And I'm thinking, that's not funny. I've just, I've just said it as it is. Yes. And, and that's what I do. So I don't go on that field to be funny or you know, try to be somebody I'm not. I'm just being myself and just saying it is at, at, at the time without being disrespectful to anybody. But it's also part of the chemistry on the pitch. It's like a good teacher who can be very, very strict, but the respect from the classroom comes also from the humanity and, in your case, the humour. So it's not, it, it is actually part of the package, even though uh, if, it was, if the humour was the package alone, it would make you a 
rubbish ref. It's, it's an important part of how you control a field. It is. It is a huge important part. And, you know, sometimes a smile uh, when the time is right, you know, saying, sorry, I got that yes. wrong or I didn't see that or a little bit of humour in, in diffusing a situation sometimes, you know, yes. is, is part of the bigger picture in you doing your job to the best of your ability, really. And, look, I never go on that field to speak down to somebody or to be funny and put somebody down or to laugh and joke. You just penalise or send somebody off. Then you don't smile at that time. There's a time and place. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I just be myself. And part of that, of me refereeing, is that style. And I, I suppose history will speak for itself. You know, I referee the biggest game in the world, the World Cup final, yeah. where people deem you to be the best referee in the world when you do that. Can't um, really say fairer than that, can you? I, I know, so th- I must be doing something right. Must be, absolutely. So, the legend is that you missed a conversion, you missed a sitter and your mates decided yeah. you should be the referee. Is that, is that That's close very to true, the yeah. truth? It is, because myself, we were a bare 15, because it was a new school, a yes. Welsh school, the numbers were quite low at that time. So we were a bare 15, and that's the only reason I was playing, because a bare 15, <laughs> I was playing full-back. And uh, my mate Wayne Thomas scored a try down in a skull griff with Jones in St. Clair's. The last game of the season, we'd lost every game and been hammered all year. And the last game of the season, uh, it was the first 15, so I was 16 at the time, or nearly 16. And uh, the score took it to 12 or conversion to come, last play of the game. Oh, My no. other mate, Craig Bunnell, was the captain, so I said to him, Craggs, I'll take this now. <laughs> and the other, there was, they called them year seven and year nine now. We used to call them form one and form three. They had finished their game and they were watching ours. And I said, I'll take his conversion. So I could just envision you know, me taking his conversion Kicking it, winning the first game ever, our last game of the season, 14-12, I'd be a hero in school. I lined up, I kicked the conversion straight in front of the post, (laughs) and it went over towards the corner flag, nowhere near the post itself. And um, my mates didn't speak to me for a couple of days. John Bynum, the because sports it's teacher. Well, it, 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 it is, it is, actually. Your granny could have put that it, it is. over Yes, <laughs> that's true, that's very know, true. And John Bynum was a sports teacher, the late John Bynum, unfortunately, a great, great guy who helped me a lot in my refereeing when I started. Mm. And uh, John Bynum said to me, he said, oh, bloody hell, Nigel, he said, will you go and referee or something? <laughs> and I said, well, all right, okay then. And then I went to help out refereeing some school games oh, in, in school. And, and that is how it started. Completely natural, just an organic... Just, just by complete chance. And when I referee the school games... I enjoyed it, and I said, right. oh, I enjoyed this. Why? Then, what, is it, what do you enjoy about it, Nigel? I just, you know, being part of that game, really, yes. part of the enjoyment. And just and, and uh, a really important part, more important than... than well, I wouldn't say you're the most... I think the play's the most important part on the p- people well, on integral, the pitch. Integral, then. Integral. But, yeah, but, you, but there is no doubt you are an important part of the game. Mm. Far from the most important part, but you are an important part of, of that game because without you, they, they can't have... A game of rugby. So you never had dreams, really, of being a famous rugby player? Well, I did when I was growing up. You know, I wanted to be Phil Bennett, sure. then I wanted to be Mark Ring, then but, I wanted but, to be but Jonathan Davis. you started Davis. playing competitively and you I saw realized I was, sat in I realized it wasn't going to happen. No, <laughs> I realised it wasn't going to happen. You, you knew you were gay, presumably, from puberty? or No, I didn't know. Be, because no. it was so alien to your... Experience, it wouldn't be something that you could even have a conversation in your own head about. Is that? It wouldn't, no, it wasn't. Um, okay. I was sort of, you know, I had a girlfriend in school, just in, in my eyes back then, just a normal kid. Have a girlfriend, you have your mates, yeah. and then 
your upbringing as well, um, where your mum and dad, you know, you, you, you're taught what is right and wrong to respect people. Yes. And then you get older, you'll get a girlfriend. Then you get uh, engaged, you get married, you get kids, you become grandparents. And that's the way the world goes round. Yes. And, uh, but then at 19 years of age, you know, I started realising on occasions I was finding myself, why am I finding myself attracted to this guy? And this was something totally alien. I had never met a gay person. I'd never knew a gay person. The only gay people that I could could know of were the, some very camp characters on yes. the old sitcoms back in the 70s, yeah. 80s. You well, know, well, you'd have Larry Grayson on the Generation, Grayson game, generation you? Yeah. game, you know? And, I, and I'm thinking... Which is a million miles away from it who, is. who you are, regardless of your sexuality. Yes, you just have got nothing in common away. with these men. And I'm sitting there and thinking, I'm, I'm not like that. I can't, I can't no. be me. And then you hear... The language that people use then about these gay people, yes. and that would make you, oh my God, you know, there's no way, if I am gay, there's no way these people are going to accept mm. me for who I am. So at 19 years of age, that's when I started getting sort of mental health issues and and dealing and becoming somebody I didn't want to, to be. And um, I started then binge eating, comfort eating, you know, maybe going out and drinking a bit too much sometimes to sort of deal with these issues going on in my head. The sense of... A shameness, sense of dirtiness, something, a sense that there was something wrong with me. Which you can't wash out. Which you, you can't, can't. No, you can't. And I would spend hours in the shower sometimes trying to wash it out. Oh, mate, really? You know, yeah, and, and you can't do that. Oh, of course. But at the time, I thought, you know, that I need to wash this away from me. And, yes. um, and then I sort of put a lot of weight on, and then I, bec- I went up to something like 16 and a half stone, quite fat, obese, and... Um, I decided that I need I need to lose weight because the kind of person I'm now finding myself attracted to occasionally is not going to find me attractive because I wasn't happy with my image. Had you acted on your feelings ever by this point? Uh, once or twice, and, and that I know I felt dirty. Did you? I felt really bad. I, I'd go to wash myself for hours afterwards, trying to wash this dirt away from me. Was what I that's what I felt at the yeah. time. And then I became bulimic then because I put the weight on yeah. and. Um, so you started purging. I purging, purging, and then I would. I'd eat my breakfast, make myself sick. I'd eat my dinner, make myself sick. I'd go out to friends, eat my main meal, make myself sick. Because I wanted to be normal then and mm. eat the pudding with them, I, or dessert as they call it, I would make myself sick after after dessert as well. And this went on for five, six years where I'd make myself sick Did two anyone three know? times. No, I hid it well. I hid it. It sounds unspeakably lonely. What it's you're very, very lonely. Living a lie, living a lie about my sexuality, what I was dealing with, the mental health issues, the depression, living a lie about the belief. And and then, after I lost a lot of weight, then I went from sort of 16 and a half stone down to 11 and a half stone. I decided I wanted to go to the gym and put some weight on to make myself look and feel mm. better. And then I got hooked on steroids. Oh, and I was stuck on steroids and abusing steroids for many years. So by the time I was 25 years of age, I was bulimic, hooked on steroids, deeply in depression with mental health issues of my sexuality really scared that the world would not accept me and I'm becoming somebody that I didn't want to accept myself. And I I read somewhere that if you got chemically castrated, that you would get rid of your sexual urges. Right. And I got into my mind, well, me being like this is a sexual urge. If I get rid of that, then it'll cure me. That's what I was thinking. And I went to the doctor and, and asked to be chemically castrated and he said, look, it doesn't work like that, Nigel. And I left there in actually worse state than I got in there right. because my out had gone. That was your escape room. That was my even, escape Even route. if it was nonsense, at least it existed until it is, the doctor yes. told you that it didn't. And then a few months after that, it just went down, 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 downhill. And I went to a very, very dark place. And uh, and I did something one night that um, 
that I will regret for the rest of my life, something I have to live with for the rest of my life. I, I left a note for my mum and dad and said, um, didn't tell them why. I said, um, I can't carry on in my life anymore. And I'll never forgive myself for what I put my mum and dad through. When they got up and read that note and probably thought they were never going to see their only child ever again, I'll never forgive myself for that. And uh, I left the house with a couple of bottles of um whiskey, a couple of boxes of paracetamols and a shotgun because I used to work on the farm I had a shotgun in the house and I left the house with a loaded shotgun and I walked around Manikerig where I was still living at home mm. for the last time really, looking at everything, saying my goodbyes in one sense and what I actually took to take my own life actually ended up saving me because I went into a coma by overdosing the police helicopter, the people were out with, with the police, with the dogs and friends and family were out looking for me. And they located me by the heat sensors they have on the helicopter. So they knew I was still alive. Yeah. But they could also see I had a, a gun on my chest pointing to the bottom of my chin. So it took them a few more hours then before they got closer because they didn't know whether I was going to turn the gun on somebody else or pull the trigger because they knew I was still alive. And they realized then that the heat in my body was getting less and less because I was now in the coma, slipping into hypothermia. And they realized, well, if we don't do something now, he's going to die anyway. So they came closer. I got airlifted to... Uh, West Wales General Hospital when I spent a couple of days in intensive care and then another six or seven days in hospital and um, when I came round the, the doctor told me uh, look you're a very lucky young man another 20 minutes would have been too late to save you did and you, did, my, my mum and dad and family and friends came to visit me and people left my mum left and she came back one night and this is the moment that my life changed and this is the moment my life was saved my mum came back and she said um if you ever do anything like that again, then you take me and your dad with you because we don't want to live our life without you. And I, my mum just left and I just, I cried. I cried in hospital, in the bed. And I said to myself, this is who I am. I don't have a choice in being who I am. You have a choice to be a good person, a bad person. You have a choice what football team or rugby team you support. You have a choice what you eat. You have a choice if you drink, if you take drugs. You don't have a choice in being who you are. You don't have a choice in your sexuality. And I said to myself, I, I need to grow up and I need to accept who I am. And that is the moment my life was saved because the challenge of overcoming and accepting who I was is the biggest challenge in my life. Refereeing that World Cup final two and a half years ago between Australia and New Zealand and Twickenham in front of 85,000 people, millions and millions across the world watching every single decision you make, the pundits watching, mm. has he got that right? Is he getting that right? That was nothing compared to the challenge and the pressure of me accepting who I was in, 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 in my life. And, um, like, I... It doesn't matter who you are, what country you come from, what the colour of your skin is, your, your sexual orientation, or your religious beliefs are. None of that should matter one bit. All that should matter is, is that if you were a decent human being, that you were to be treated the same. No better, no worse. No the ticking of boxes. Just treated the same as everybody else. Not only in society and everyday mm. life, but in my case, in the sport that I choose to participate in. And that's what I think... You shouldn't judge anybody on the colour of the skin, their beliefs, their sexual orientations. 
you judge people on the content of what their character is. And I had now finally accepted who I was. And that's when now I believe and hope that people will judge me on the person I am. Of course. Not on my sexuality. No. Did you, when you came round and the doctor said you were lucky, this was before your mum came and, and essentially she articulated the purest love imaginable by saying, if you're not here, mm. boy, I don't want to be here either. I, I imagine when the doctor said you were lucky, you still didn't feel lucky. Or did no, I you? didn't. No, I didn't at that time. No, I didn't realise until the years sort of... The months and the years went by, I realised, looking back now, I realised how truly lucky I was because um, I know a lot of young people um, who have taken their own lives. Yes. There's about four or five in, in the com- within the community, sort of the wider community where I live in the last couple of years. I lost my cousin, my second cousin, who was a good friend of mine as well, oh. at 30 years of age, two years ago, who took his own life. Not because of his sexuality, but because no, of mental health issues. It's the common cause of it death is a most common for men, cause. isn't it? It is, yeah, age. it is. And then I had a phone call on Monday morning of, of another cousin, my third cousin, and she's only 26 years of age, mm. who took her own life on Sunday. So it's, you know, when I look back now, I sometimes feel guilty, you know. I, I feel guilty sometimes that there are these people losing their lives. I've been lucky to get that second chance. And I just sometimes feel a bit of guilt Particularly people you know. Yeah. God, is there anything I could have done to help them then, to prevent, to tell them, look. I've looked over this. Yeah, I've looked. I've I've been here, you know. You get through this and and life will be better. And sometimes, I I wonder sometimes, do, do people sometimes who lose, I can't think of anything worse than losing a child. No. Particularly in circumstances like that, when you don't know why, I suppose. And I sometimes feel... Do these people think, do they look at me differently because I've had a second chance, I'm still here. Their children haven't had a second chance. Mm-hmm. Do they think, you know, could I have done anything more? And, and the message is you can't do anything more unless they tell you, Unless, and that's what I said earlier, until you accept mm-hmm. there are issues, there's not much you can do about it and there's not much anybody else can do about it. So, yes, I look back now, even more so now, how very, very lucky I, 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 I was. And sometimes I look back and feel guilty sometimes of how lucky I was when, when I see so many young people. And it, to me, it's, it's one of the saddest things, I think. And that's what, when you hear people say things, and that was my main issue with, yeah. with Israel Falau, with his comments, you know, it was, it was nothing to do with his beliefs. He mm. is entitled to his beliefs. And I respect somebody for their own beliefs. It doesn't mean I respect their beliefs, but I sure. respect their their right to believe in their beliefs. And if you're entrenched in that de- in that beliefs, I understand, and, and that that's fine. But then, when you're in a position of privilege like that, there comes a responsibility in the way that you convey those beliefs. And I would just wish people could understand people who have beliefs like Israel Falau, which is not an issue for me. They have those beliefs. I wish mm. they didn't have, but they do. The issue for was me it was it religious for him? Was it? It's a religious thing for him. Yeah, yes, I yeah, yeah. So. That's that's his yeah. religious yeah, beliefs, sure. you know, and he's really deeply religious. Mm. So, for me, it's it's trying to get those people to understand. Look, me being gay is is not a choice. Mm. You know, there are young people out there taking their own lives. Feeling like you did. Feeling like I did. And when they hear words like this used that people will go to hell yeah. because they're gay if they don't repent, that is an, 
if I had heard those words when I was 24 years of age, yeah. it would have probably pushed me to do what I did probably sooner and may well have ended my life, who knows. And that's where I sort of wish people would think about what they say and the way they convey their opinions, I believe. And I wish they would try and understand that everybody's different and it's not a choice. Judge sure. me and other gay people. Judge them on the content of their character, not on their sexuality. So you're in hospital or you're out now. You've, you've been honest with yourself for the first time, properly honest. And you knew what you were, but you pretended that you didn't have to be. You believed that you could be different. So what I'm thinking is you have to learn to love yourself at this point in your life. I I did, and I accepted who I was, yeah. and I was probably I was probably happy enough in yes. myself who I was. Accepted who I was. I accepted that that this is me. If you were to ask me, would I change anything? Would I give up everything I've achieved? The World Cup final, all the finals I've did, and everything I've achieved in my life. Would I give all that up to have a quiet, what's perceived to be a normal life, a wife? couple of kids, you come grandparents, then I think I probably would. Because life, life would, would just be, be just, easier. Just be easier, just, mm. just simpler. But this is the cars I've been dealt. This is it wasn't who I either am. or, though. It wasn't, it wasn't your sexuality and the, and the refereeing success. You could, you could, they're not, or, or are they? Did you? Well, my sexuality hindered my refereeing success. That's what I was sort not of because at. of other people. Sure. But me thinking about what other people are going to think. Because if you had to pick an environment in which to, 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 to learn to be comfortable <laughs> to with your homosexuality, yes. Welsh rugby. I would pick the wrong one. <laughs> rugby, yes. Welsh, yes. living in the valleys, <laughs> pick the wrong one. Um, but because still in the back of my mind, I was getting those sort of thoughts and sort of getting me down, not to the extent I was before, sure. because I was worried now. What are my mum and dad going to say if they find out? Mm. Will they chuck me out in the street? Will my friends turn my back on me? Will I be allowed to referee? I was doing it by a job oh, okay. by this time yeah, now, sort you. of coming to the early 2000s. And it was affecting my refereeing because unless you're happy within yourself, happy within the person you are, mm. happy with the environment you are, whether it's as a family at home, in work, in what you do, unless you are happy within everything, you can't excel and be the best at what you sure. be. There's no doubt about mm. that. And I wasn't happy within myself, within the environment, because I was still living this lie. I was, I was brought up to be honest. And here I am lying to the most important people in my life every day of mm. who I am. And I had a couple of internationals to referee. I did Japan against Ireland in Osaka and I did Scotland against Barbarians up in um, Aberdeen. And I didn't referee the two games very well. I did okay. And then they were making appointments then for the um, Autumn Internationals. There were 15 Autumn Internationals and there were 16 international referees. And Paddy O'Brien was the referee's manager at the time and he rang me up and he said, look, I got 15 games to a point in November. I got 16 referees. One referee is going to lose out and, and that's going to be you, unfortunately, because your performance wasn't good enough. And I thought I'd blown it. Yeah. I'd blown it because still in the back of my mind was this constant worry of what happens. Mm. You know, Nobody should have to make a choice of being who you are and continuing the sport you love mm. or being the person that you are. And I thought I'd have to make that choice. Mm. And this was playing on my mind. And then a couple of weeks later, Paddy rang back and he said, um, look, there's another game come in um, outside the international window. First Saturday in December, Argentina playing Samoa in Buenos Aires is going to point you to the game. And I thought, right, I've got five months. Physically, I was fine. Physically, I was fit. Right. Mentally, I wasn't sure. quite right there. 
And I thought, I've got five months to get myself right for this. What do I need to do to do that? After a couple of weeks of mulling it over, mulling it over, I then decided it's I'm going to have to tell people. And if they say that I can't continue to referee, then I'm going to either have to keep it quiet to continue refereeing, but that's not going to make any difference, or um, I'm going to have to make the decision to give up my rugby mm. and live my life. And um, I told my mum, first of all, and uh, I let her tell my dad, took it a few days, but uh, <laughs> they were fine with it, you know, and um, my dad doesn't know much all, what it's all about. He's 82 years of age, but he loves me just the same. We get on brilliantly. I went to see my line manager, Bobby Emmett. Just, just pause a bit there, well, because that was presumably, from the way you've described it, it was a hell of a lot easier than you'd imagined it was going to be. It was, telling my mum was, yeah. and it was a huge relief, you yeah. know. The disappointing bit was, and my mum said... Oh, yeah, I thought you were. I mean, how do you think I was? <laughs> the effort yeah. I put into yeah. this. And she said, well, you know, a couple of years ago, I found some magazines under oh, your bed. Mom. And, oh, my God. And this was before you had the internet and the websites, you know. And um, anyway, I told my ref- referees manager, Bobby Ehrman at WIU, who said, look, you've got nothing to worry about. Nigel. We will support you. And they did. The following morning, I had players ringing me and coming up and shaking my hand. Because you went to the paper, you did. You did no, I didn't, no, I didn't go to the paper then. Just, no, it's just, just the word went like that. Once it, and you once wanted it, it to. Yes, a, I, told, yeah. I text a couple of my mates right, and then everybody, within two hours after me telling my mum and telling my boss in work and yeah. telling a couple of mates, I was having phone calls from New Zealand Seriously. from people saying, is it true? And um, do you know, when the reaction I had was so positive. I can count on one hand the negative comments. And it was like the... Do you know when people say you'll feel the weight of the world lifted off your shoulder? Yes. It honestly was. I was a different person. And you'd been carrying that weight for a long and time. And I've been carrying it for the best part. By that time, I say you have about 32, so about 14 years. Yeah. And I went to referee this game. Um, and I went out on that field. And I, I the last thing I like doing is blow my own trumpet. But... Damn, I refed it well. You know, <laughs> I came off and it's I thought... It's like a new gear. Yeah, it yeah, was. Yeah. I thought, I refed that well. Yeah. And the assessor gave me a glowing report. And then I went on to referee a record 81 test matches, a World Cup final, six European finals, 106 European games, four Pro 12 finals, and the rest is history, they say. And I wouldn't have able to achieve any of that if I wasn't allowed to be myself yes. and if I'd accepted myself... And there is no, no better message for me than a happy person will be much better at what he does and he will enjoy life as a happy person much more. And that means in you accepting yourself and also your family, the environment you're working on, the sport, allowing you to be yourself. And that's where I've been very fortunate mm. in rugby, in family, in friends, that they have allowed me to get on with my life and just... Just be who I am. I, I don't want to indulge the sort of rugby versus football cliche, but it is a very, it is a more respectful sport than football is. It would perhaps be harder for a, certainly for a football player to come out or a, a, a football referees possibly don't have the recognition levels that rugby referees do. But rugby is, is it's a nice world. Isn't it? It's, yeah, a, it's, yeah. it's usually quite a warm world. I think to be fair, yeah, there is a minority of bad people in rugby. There's a minority Everywhere. of people in, of in all walks of life. Yes. There's such the global massive sport that football is. The minority has a bigger voice in football. Yeah, you might be right. And look, I know a lot of football. I enjoy watching football. Myself. I'm not mm. a mad football fan, but I enjoy watching football, you know. And uh, a lot of my friends are big football supporters, rugby as well. 
And I know a lot of people who are football supporters who are brilliant people, great people. Um, but what rugby does has, and this shows when spectators can sit next to each other in the stadium, support opposition team, enjoy a beer, yet enjoy each other's company. Mm. You can't do that in football. So football does still have, if you think of what football has changed from the 70s and 80s, mm. you know, with the riots and the racism and everything, football is in a much, much better place now. But it still has a lot to do before spectators, if it'll ever happen, from opposition team can sit next to each other, sit wherever they, they want. You know, it still has that element of yes. that minority in it. Tribal. Rugby has it as well. It's mm. creeping in in rugby. And it? We ha- yeah, it is. You know, sometimes in games you'll have a little scuffle between a few people in rugby as well. Mm. So rugby has a minority of people as well. And that's what rugby has to do is, is to maintain that values of, of respect, I think. And, uh, and I think, you know, football needs to address that as well. And when football does address that, I think then people in the sport will then understand and maybe find it easier that they can be themselves in the sport. But I think as well, what people don't yeah. realise is, I think as a sports person in particular, and I'm not saying that I'm a sports person as a referee, but I suppose I'm in sports. Well, you are, yeah. So when I was going through that difficult time in the 20s, in one dealing with who I was and then what I was going to do about it, I could have never come out in that period of time because I was expect, accepting it myself. And a lot, when people say, well, why isn't anybody else out in football then? Why isn't anybody else out in rugby? It's because a lot of them are probably dealing with their yes. sexuality themselves, yes. like I was. Yes. And until they can accept that themselves, there's no way they can come out. So, yes, the environment will enable you maybe to accept who you are sooner, but you st- I was fighting against being gay until I was 26 years of age, until I nearly lost my life. It made me finally realise I haven't have a choice. Mm. So a lot of people are still dealing with that. So that is an issue as well where people need to understand. So rugby is not a homophobic sport, and I don't think football will be a homophobic sport. When the first person comes out, he, he will realise or she will realise that they will be allowed to be who they are in their sport and the majority of people will support them for who they are. The problem is, it's going to be difficult for that first person yeah, because the, when he does, that will be the pioneer and the eyes of the world will be on them. And you have to be a certain type of person, a strong person, yes. to maybe not want to be that person, but to say, right, okay, if it means I'm going to be the first one, then I'll be the first one. And maybe a lot of them don't want to be that first one. Yes, it, it falls to me is how they'd have to feel. It is. And it, it, it will probably change their lives forever then. For sure. For sure. So, In a good way, they would yeah, hope no, as well. Well, well because it's interesting but because something's just slotted into place for me when you mentioned the bulimia, which is about control, isn't it? In a world where you have control of very little eating disorders often give you an illusion of control Mm. and a referee is all about control so you had this that's why there were two Nigels because you were professionally controlling things and privately in control of nothing yeah exactly and that was a way of control my controlling my weight and unfortunately I still suffer from bulimia today I had a sort of about a couple of a month or two ago when it came back for a couple of days you know two or three times because you were stressed about something yeah and I'm I'm trying to put my finger on what yeah. was triggering it to come back. What I know what triggers it to come back is the fact when I think I put a bit of weight on and I can see myself put a weight on yeah. and then I, I don't feel comfortable in my body. And right. I, I don't like this. I want to get rid of this. Yes. But obviously, 
in that period, in putting that weight back on, there was a period where I would have binged eating or, you know, whether I was feeling a bit down and gone sure. out and drunk a bit. Yeah. And I'm not a big drinker, but I do oh, enjoy I a few it. pints yeah, in moderation. Mm. So what I need to do now is what is triggering me to do that binge eating, mm. which then leads to me weight going on, which triggers me then back to, oh, I need to get rid of this and make yeah, myself yeah, ill. Yeah. And people will say, well, look, from what you've been through in your life, from what you've achieved in your life, you must be the happiest person alive. And I say to them or to myself, oh, no, there are still things that worry me, you know. My, I'm the only oh. child. My mum passed away nine years ago. Um, my dad is 82 years of age. I hope he lived for another 20 years, but he's sure. not going to be around forever. Yeah. When my dad passes away, it'll be only me. When people lose parents, if they're married or they have a partner, they have children, mm. there's that family, your brothers, sisters, everybody around. Now, I have a lot of cousins, which I'm very close to, and godchildren and, and younger cousins, little cousins, uh, who are always calling over. I take them for food and stuff like this. So I've got a really good, brilliant, close family, and I... I probably wouldn't be where I am today without them sure. but at the end of the day when my dad passes away it will just be me and that immediate family you know and sometimes yeah. I go to bed sometimes and I switch that light off and I think to myself I'm in a lonely place sometimes yes, and that worries me and that gets me down sometimes um, and that's what I said to you earlier you know when somebody asks me sometimes when they ask me at the right moment or the yeah. wrong moment would you change anything yeah and I would say, yeah, I wish I had a wife and family in a normal, quiet life, not in the public eye where I could just get on with my life. Touch but it. now it's, it's difficult, the pressures of, of the refereeing, you know, the pressures of, you know, I don't like talking about my past like this. Right. But I'm doing it because I know it helps other people who have been in that uh, situation. People have to, I've had letters yes, from parents sure. and young people yes. saying that it's helped them. And to be honest with you, it's helping me as well. And yes. this is probably how I am dealing as well with still those times when I get a bit down is is by maybe speaking about it like this. It's yes. my sort of default, I suppose, in in dealing with it. But, yeah, I, I do get worried sometimes and things do trigger you sort of to maybe binge eat and stuff. And um, I do worry sometimes that um, that I will grow old and, and lonely and I, I don't want that. Have you ever been in love? Me. Have you ever been in love? Yeah, I have, yeah. Um, I'm sure how true that love was or other it'll still be there, you know. So, um, oh, I don't I, know about yeah, that. Yeah, I was dating a guy until quite recently and obviously things have just drifted apart. What will happen in the future, I don't know. But yeah, it was a very difficult time. And then when you add to your life as a gay person, you add to refereeing mm. at that very top of the game in those situations. You add the fact that I'm now sharing this story with people because... And I'm not doing this because I want people to know more about me or to, you know, as people have called me a uh, celebrity. No, that's the last thing. I would change that like that if I could, sure. but I can't. Yes. Um, and the TV work I did, I was on stage at 13 years of age doing stand-up before yeah. I was refereeing, so it's part of me. So yes. all this has put me in a situation where I have become a well-known person. Yeah. But the fact that I'm gay has made it... 10 times harder I believe in being in that situation I think and what I would like people to understand is when I hear some comments by some people saying uh, he only wants to hear his voice he wants to be a celebrity referee no 
It's the circumstances, and I suppose in one way, without blowing my own trumpet in refereeing, it's his success that has put me there, mm. that has made me a face that people recognise. Not because I want to be there. I accept I am there and I have to deal with that. Um, and you, when you take the sort of plaudits that come your way with that and, you know, you feel proud of what you've achieved yes. and your family feel proud, you've got to accept as well, yeah, when, you know, when, when, when the bad things come along as well, you have to accept, well, yeah, you know, people will say those things for whatever reason. You, I wonder, though, because your legacy in many ways won't be playing a blinder in Buenos Aires that time or, or, or nailing the World Cup final at Twickenham. In many ways, especially for, for, for young men who who are gay and also really like sport or, or, or rugby in particular or sport in general, your legacy will actually be um, you, you can do this. Your legacy will be the message that people take away from your story and your experiences and your honesty and your comfort talking about very intimate and difficult things. Your legacy will be a gift to people who still can't, but maybe one day will. I think that would be the proudest thing for me, I would think. If that was the, if there is a legacy to be left for me, uh, it's not the fact what I've achieved in refereeing or on television or whatever. I think it thing that would make me most proud is the legacy of people be able to say that mm. the story that I shared, the difficult times, which believe me, unless you've been there, you cannot imagine, it was hell. Yeah. Um, the legacy of that in knowing that it has helped, even if it was one person. Yes. But I know it's more than one person, and hopefully it'll be more again in realising that, look, you can be yourself. You should be allowed to be yourself and to help them in achieving that, in, in overcoming those difficulties in what worries them, in encouraging them to go and speak, ask for professional help, speak to somebody about it, because that's how you're going to get over it. And if that can happen and them doing that... And they can achieve whatever they achieve in life, even if it's just a straightforward, simple life, mm. but you're alive to do it, mm. you know. And also as well, I hope that the people who look at gay people in a different light and don't like that they're gay or think they should be somewhere else but on this earth, hopefully in getting them with time to realize, OK, I don't agree with it, I don't like it, but... I need to understand that people are different and I accept that and I respect that and I will let them get on with their lives. And if that is what I leave behind, then I, I don't think I could be any prouder, to be honest with you, if, if that's the case. Nigel Lines, it's been an absolute privilege. No, it really pleasure. has. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank, Thank you. you. And that was Nigel Owens, who, well, I, I, you must be getting bored of me telling you that I can't believe how well Unfiltered has gone. But that was one of the most compelling interviews I've ever conducted. And it's also the closest I've come to crying since we started doing Unfiltered. What, what an amazingly honest man. And, and when strong and successful men talk about their feelings, whether they're gay, straight or somewhere in between, and they talk about their vulnerabilities, it's always good and it's always healthy because nobody, however buttoned up they may be, nobody goes away from hearing someone like Nigel talk so so honestly about so much thinking, right, I'm going to be more repressed and I'm going to be more angry and I'm going to be less honest with myself. It's so powerful to hear someone like that being so, so honest. I hope you agree. Um, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Unfiltered and don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes if you want. And don't forget to, to pass on how enjoyable this recently award-nominated podcast is. 
You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe.